And there would inevitably be this lovely couple or this lovely person who would buy this flat and you know they'd, they'd go and they'd flush the toilet and it'd be hot water inside it. And then you get at the complete asshole of a buyer who complained and whinged about everything. Everything would work in his, but he just continued to complain and whinge. And those stories happen actually, you know, from site to site to site. That's John Hitchcock, the chairman and founder of U Group, the property company behind the £1.3 billion regeneration of Olympia London and, considered by many, the global leader in the branded residence space. Now, John founded U in 1999 with one of the world's most famous designers, Philippe Stark. Together, they've grown U to where it is today, operating in over 50 cities and 30 countries worldwide. They also have a great energy business. John has been in the property market since the early 80s and has ridden through multiple financial crises, so it's a good time to talk. We haven't interviewed a property entrepreneur before, but with markets going bananas, we thought it was about time we learned what's really going on in the industry and maybe even find out what's going to happen next with stuff like interest rates. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and in my conversations with other founders, I uncover the moments that made them into the leaders they are today and where we might be heading. Now, John told me lots of stories in this conversation, but none, I think, describe him more perfectly than the story of his first potential property deal. John was only about 14 or 15 and had seen an advert for a piece of land in Ibiza in a newspaper. I'd been on a plane once. My father's cousin had died and left our family a holiday and we all went on an aeroplane to to the Algarve and that, that was the first time and, the second, and, and, and I saw this advertisement in, in, in the exchange in Mark for a piece of land it was 1500 quid and it was in a place called Portanax and I thought 1500 quid if I knock them down half um, I might be able to buy it and I, so I, I, I bought myself a ticket my mum and dad let me go <laughs> and I jumped on a plane Ah, yes, I got a, so I must have been, yeah, I remember I got a scooter, so I must have been 14, 15, all the way up to this place called Portanax, looked at this plot of land, got a, I got sent in a sort of stamped address envelope, I got sent this little map, this place, and looked at it, found the, found the, found where I thought the place was, and in front of, in front of, this was this huge hotel, behind the huge hotel was this rubbish dump behind this rubbish dump was a car park and behind this car park was this tiny little plot of land with no view of the sea and nothing but it was my first potential property deal and i didn't buy it yeah might have might have been quite a good one might have been the best one ever to be honest ibiza would have done okay quite fun it's quite it's quite funny because it, you're absolutely right there's a six senses literally around the corner from it now <laughs> John grew up in the south of England in the 1960s. I mean, I, I grew up in a very, very almost hippie environment. My, um, my mother made almost everything that we wore and ate. Uh, so if you, back in the, those days, we, we had on TV, well, we were only allowed to watch two programmes a week. And, and one of them was The Good Life, because I think my parents were slightly led along by that. Uh, I, I, in hindsight, I can't, I can't complain at all. I think at the time, I was one of five kids. My father was, um, my father was disabled. He'd been saved from polio by my mother. Uh, it's a lovely romantic story. My mother was, my mother 
took on way, way too many things than, than she should have done. A was looking looking after the family, having five kids, having she must have had a hundred animals. John's father was an architect and was constantly working on the family home or homes. We moved into we moved quite a few times when I was a kid, and we saw were well, five of us as I, uh, five of us children, as I mentioned. And the only time we ever saw a house finished was the day we moved out of it. And we moved into the next small one and it was slowly built around us, which in a way was the best form of education that you could possibly get. I mean, I look at my, my education now and I go, that was one piece. That, that taught me everything about building because I saw the foundations go in. I saw the bricks going up. I saw the windows being placed in. I saw the lintels being placed above the windows. I saw the roof being built above them, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, that I, I've, I've done that with my kids now and, and they're, they're moving into our trade. And that made me really understand why, you know, Mr. Seed is the gardener and Mr. Seed's son's the gardener because there's a, there's a lot of education that you get around that. But the other piece of the education that I got was being a paper boy. And I, I was a little paper, I was a paper boy in a village called Forest Row in East Sussex. And I might, each of the paper rounds sort of start with the local council estate and then graduate. So it sort of basically starts with the red tops and then you graduate to the Guardian and then there was the, the Observer. And then you move out to the Times and the Financial Times as you get to the end of the village in the posher side. Of the, but each day I would read everything. I'd, I'd sit with my my, canvas, my green canvas bag and on the top of it was the every paper. And I read every single paper every single day. You know, it's interesting. You're the third guest that I've had that did a paper round and used to read the papers as their form of education. I mean, I, f- I found it fascinating. You know, I mean, like, for example, I mean, back in those days, the Telegraph and the Observer gave exceptional reports on Africa. And that really encouraged me to go out and explore. And I, and I spent quite a lot of time in Africa immediately after school. And it was on that paper round John had found that advertisement for the plot of land in Ibiza and flew out there to see if he wanted to buy it. His confidence grew and a couple of years later he had his second stab at business when a friend's girlfriend gave them a tip. She had this client who was Jordanian. This is very ironic and funny, full circle, because he had a house literally around the corner from Olympia and uh, he had seven little apartments in it and he had to sell it uh, because he had his visa expired in two weeks' time. So I borrowed £49.95 off my mum and went to Newman on the corner of um, Notting Hill and bought a suit and one of those briefcases that were about £5.99 at the time. And we got a copy of the Yellow Pages. Back then there was a thing called the Yellow Pages. And we looked under B for banks. And we made ourselves, I must have been 40 or 50 appointments with these bank managers to see, not knowing that we couldn't borrow the money, not knowing age. I think he was 19 and I was 17. Uh, Not knowing that we couldn't borrow money to build by this building, but we knew this guy had to leave leave the country quickly and therefore needed to sell it. And we went in and we just asked, asked these bank managers told, asked these bank managers to lend us this money so, to buy these seven flats that we were going to do up and sell. Um, unbelievably, every, I used to time them as to how quickly they'd throw us out uh, as these, these young boys nearly in shorts. And unbelievably, one chap, Andrew Aegeus, his name was, I think, yeah, um, 
from the Allied Arab Bank in Park Lane sort of got quite interested, by which time the house had gone and it all fell apart, a little bit like my, my story in Ibiza. And I was licking my wounds, driving down to uh, see my parents one day, and I stopped off at an estate agent in uh, 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 South Croydon, a place called uh, Godston Road. And there was a little uh, house for sale for £19,200, which I ended up buying, turning it into two flats, selling them, doing the one over the road, the one over the road, the one over the road. We did about, through the 80s, we did about 350 Victorian houses in London back into apartments. Amazing. So uh, the the main crux of the business back then was sort of just uh, the opportunity of seeing, the, you know, these are houses, um, it's a reasonable amount of space, it's got beautiful features, and there's an explosion of like families, therefore demand, therefore turning these into flats takes, for example, a £200,000 property as a house back then, turning it into a £300,000 with 250k flats. Was that essentially the maths and the equation? You flip it, you use the profits to buy the next one? Exactly, exactly. Well, the maths, the maths, the maths, was, the maths was borrow 70% from the bank, raise 30% from an investor, share, share 50% of the upside, and so move on to the next one, and and and, and you know the, the naivety was lovely because uh, we launched in eighty um, one ish somewhere around then, and then by by the time we got but ne- never knew a recession, uh, got to got to the eighties, and I, I'd sort of steadily by then we'd learned quite a lot about economy, got to the eighties, and and I very fortunately sold out at the top of the eighties, and, and thinking that this would just this this incredible rise in values couldn't go on. And then, uh, and then came back in in '91, and started a company called Manhattan Loft Corporation. At this stage here, I was really, um, really keen to get design involved, and 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 I'd also gone away and studied. Uh, I did a postgraduate course in in um, marketing and management, and uh, so I you know, started to started to apply things like brands and design, and we and and with Manhattan Loft Corporation, we developed a. a a company that was involved in bringing the loft concept to the UK, uh, but also gentrifying um, areas of London that, that, that needed to be brought forward. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. 
If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So you came back in the 90s with, I guess, a new story. This time, you're not just like a a young upstart kid with uh, a lot of hubris. And it sounds like a lot of confidence in yourself as well to just go and do things. Um, Now you have also got some money in your bank, some time off, most importantly, right, which has given you a chance to think about what you want to do, opportunity to refresh and restart and also uh, like new education, right? Understanding that marketing and brand are levers that you can pull if building the next thing. So talk to us about the next thing. Like how long were you building the next thing for? What did you learn in that experience? How did it lead into, guess what, the next thing? You're absolutely right. I mean, there was a, there was a, a lot of avocado sweets um, that, uh, and, and B&Q tiles that, that went in throughout the 80s. And, and I think there was an element of sophistication that emerged uh, in, in, in the 90s, um, along with, as you say, a bit of education. But I've always, I mean, for me, I've always, I've, I went to a school where you were, education was a continual process and I still always have two or three or four things that I'm studying at any one time and still do, still do today. And yes, I and I went out and I spent much, much more time looking at design, much, much more time looking at gentrification, and much, 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 much more time looking at you know marketing and the sophistication of of, of, of placemaking, what we call today placemaking. Coming out of the the crash of the eighties, which I would say is a way more serious one than we saw in two thousand six, two thousand seven. You know, then we were we were seeing banks going bust, we were seeing cranes stopping on sites, we were we were actually seeing, you know, they they hadn't thought of printing money back in those days, um, and uh, and so what we were seeing was particularly I mean, our first project was in Clerkenwell, where we bought a big old ink factory. Um, and uh, we, uh, we bought we bought the building. We didn't have um, enough cash to develop it. There wasn't any bank debt around at that particular point. So we <clears throat> we created uh, we did an awful lot of imaginative marketing by partnering with Blueprint and creating a design competition and uh, and and uh, giving people the opportunity a shell space to design and build their own home. And that proved to be very successful in Clerkenwell, where we were involved in there, in Soho, in um, Bankside, where we were actively involved in the whole regeneration of Bankside, and then then as far down as um, Canary Wharf and the works that we the works that we did there. I mean, these these projects got kind of larger and larger, to the extent where if you take Bankside, you know, our activity extended well beyond just our project, which was part of. A street. We, I was involved in the Globe. We were involved in bringing the tape there. We were involved in all of the all of the the, the pieces 
around creating an entire environment or community. So what happened to that business? I, decide that I decided to leave. Um, I decided to leave um, because I was really interested, again, in traveling. I took, I'd interestingly watched Trump in the 80s develop a brand uh, of a, a develop a very strong brand of not very much content. What I mean by that is one building with out much without much differentiation. You know, it was black and gold, and that was pretty pretty much it. But he developed a brand in a space well, in the residential space. So, and we had done something similar with Manhattan Lofts. And I thought that's something that could be interesting to do and to roll out around the world. Um, and what I really needed was a a, a a a collaborative brand that I could that I could do that with, and um, and that came in the form of Philippe Stark. It was quite accidental because at the time Philippe Stark was working with a chap called Ian Schrager. Ian Schrager was Studio Fifty Four, and he was a, sort of a god in the world of nightclubs and hotels, and they'd done a number of hotels. And I went to them both and said, guys, you should be doing residential. Um, and, and, and because I felt there was, a, there was a marketplace to do something in residential. And um, Ian Schrager at the time wasn't interested, but Philippe Stark, Philippe Stark was. Philippe Stark is renowned for his building and furniture designs, but perhaps best recognised for his lemon squeezer, which has long spider-like legs. John and Philippe set up you in 1999. The concept was to work with property developers all around the world to enhance what they offer to customers through design and branding. You know, the pitch, shall we say, to the outside world from a commercial point of view, is that we're going to leave. You know, we're going to leave this planet in a better place than we than it is when we started. And I often, I often end up standing on stage in various countries around the world, and I often crack the the joke, which is, you know, what's the difference between the um, the architect and the doctor? And and the answer is that the doctor gets to bury his mistakes. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a joke, but if you take things like, I mean, we're working on Olympia at the moment, which is a huge, huge project, and it's. Um, it, it's huge in, the ter- in terms of its scale, but it's huge in terms of its responsibility because somebody like me arrived at Olympia 150 years ago and said, I've got this great idea. I'm going to build an exhibition hall which is going to exhibit all that's good and great in the Victorian era of the UK to, to the world. And then, and he built this beautiful building, feels a little bit like a fantastic uh, railway, and then this beautiful hall next to it and, and put on fantastic exhibitions. Somebody else came along in 1925 and said, oh, you know what, I'm going to buy this beautiful building that this chap created in 1860, and I'm going to build another one next to it. And then somebody else came along in 1940s and built an Art Deco building. And now, here I am... In a way, I mean, the, the, the point being with the doctor joke is that we are just custodians. We're just, we're, just, we're just the custodians for a brief period of time of these buildings or, or this role that we play on the planet. And, 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 my, and my role here is to, to, to polish this beautiful lady, to bring 
great design, great architects, great concepts, and, and, and take her back out to the dance. It sounds like, and we get this a lot with our guests, it sounds like, you know, when you're telling the quick version of this stuff, everything just goes up and to the right in life, right? You, you, you time the market, you've got the right attitude, you time the market, you get out at the right time, you go take a break, you pick another great project, that goes super well. And now, obviously, um, things are going brilliantly. No, so no, good. No, no. So tell no, me, tell no, me about the other side. No, no. Tell me about, t- tell me a little <laughs> bit about the struggles. Tell me about what, you know, uh, let's start with a simple question. What has been the worst project or worst experience? Take us through a little nightmare. Because as a consumer, <sighs> I'm doing a building project at the moment. I'm I'm currently living in a rented accommodation because we're do, uh, doing a doer upper. If you uh, let's let's look at your project. If you are um, if you are approximately uh, less than double the time than you originally thought about it, and double the cost than you originally thought about it, you're probably doing really well. Well, especially especially in the last couple of years. Your point is absolutely well well said, and of course you you know you you spend particularly in my role where you're you're trying to put across confidence, you know all all the time, and and it was very interesting because I obviously got to sit next to Donald Trump a few times, and 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 the level of confidence that he put across on projects were way beyond the boundaries <laughs> that I was prepared to go to. Um, the, you know, the the, the 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 challenges with with these projects is the the huge quantum of moving parts, and we're we're talking about you know planning consent on day one. You know, how many times has that been delayed? How many times is that you know the getting the right piece of paper so that you can get going on a project? It, it's always challenging uh you know you're fighting and then you've got the external elements new and anyone i mean i'm 40 something years into this now and i will wake up at six now i wake up at between four and six every morning and worry about the sky falling on my head and i will have and my job my job is only to fix the broken things you know and the and the and, and one of the things that we don't do as much, you know, I mean, I, I, I'll give you a great example. We sold, last week, we sold a fantastic battery project, which we're doing in our renewables business. We did really, really well. The guys built a fantastic project. And uh, literally, by the time it put, we put the phone down, that was the celebration over because we were on to the next piece of shit that we had to clear up. And, and there's a, you know, and that's, and I think, I think, you know, the glamour of being an entrepreneur I can't, you know, is is the the view from the outside is the best position, you know, of looking at it because from the inside it's a pretty scary place and it worries me that we're all, you know, making it into this extraordinary piece of, uh, 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 you know, the outs the, the of success and and satisfaction in humanity because it's not it's a continual struggle, and. Your point is absolutely. Your point is absolutely right here. I mean, I tell a great story. That was the dream. That was the vision. But the, the opportunity, the very rare opportunity, I get to actually enjoy it is when I chat to somebody like you. And yeah, I mean, today, today, I've got, I've got as many struggles as I had forty years ago. Yeah, I had a friend uh, who's 
far more successful than me explain that uh, my problems were the same as his problems. His just had more zeros on the end. So therefore actually created exponential stress. I have this mentality of, okay, every night the sky falls on my head. Sky falls on my head. What do I do? How do I look after the family? How do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do that? And I have to do this whole, it's not every night now, but once a week, I have to do a mental sweep of everything. And... Uh, which is a calculation on what could be sold, what could be done. I mean, at the moment, you know, with it, we don't know where interest rates are going at the moment. I mean, I would imagine, you know, the level of fear that's going on across the UK and across the world at the moment from people not being able to pay their bills or their mortgages. And then on top of that, you know, then being able to plan a business around that, you know, the, the, there's a, the, it's, it's quite a frightening place being an entrepreneur. And, and, I, and I, I can only stress that. I think it's great that everyone wants to do it because it does give a hell of a lot of freedom. You think you're going to get a way more freedom in terms of, you know, I'm not going to have to work so many hours. Well, that's the opposite. You, what will happen? And, and, and I, I, you know, I, I, I compartmentalize time now still where I work and I just, my, my working life, I mean, this work from home thing is fantastic. Here I am sitting in a gym because I know I could turn around and have a workout after this band. I know that I could be on the phone whilst I'm at the, at the gym. So it's not, it's like the benefit of this treadmill is not always as rosy as it looks from the outside. I felt like something resonated with you on the reflection of, um, yeah, it's not all been easy. Actually, there have been hard moments. But of course, if I ask you for a specific building project mishap um i you know i can appreciate can get quite difficult because you're like well i don't know who else i might or might not be incriminating here if i talk about it so <laughs> let me ask something a bit more personal then talk to me about um you know one of your worst experiences in running a business what what did a really terrible day look like i think i think um I mean, the terrible day, I think, I think the, the biggest fear in business, it, I, I'm, I'm assuming that it's to say, as I've got a number of businesses uh, all, all around what we've been discussing, they're all around cash flow. So it, it's, and, and I think you will never get away as a, an entrepreneur or in senior management, you will never get away from cash flow. You will, you will always be managing it because what you will be doing is you'll be, you'll be running a business at, let's say, 75% capacity with 25% left in the tank. And that's for the rainy day. And then the rainy day, if the rainy day doesn't come, you'll just be pushing the business harder. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that, and, and so, at any one time, I mean, today, you know, I look at our business today, I've probably got 20 positions, be it projects that are starting, projects that haven't started, projects that are finishing, projects that haven't finished, projects that need cash, projects that don't, a banking that's bank that's coming on the street. And, and, it's, and, and I think every day it's ticking off those boxes of what can I do to push this along? What can I do to, to, make, to make this work? And, and, then, and then what happens is you get attached to you get attached to the highs and the lows of, of that win and lose situation, however big or small they might be. And what I have to do now is I have to, you know, if 
the chef doesn't turn up at a hotel, I've got to take myself out of that decision because I've got to worry about whether this project's going to get banked uh, now and 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 not get and then accepting. It, it, you know, today I, I gave myself this lecture just before we came on. Actually, which was, uh, can I concentrate on a conversation with you when I've got this falling apart over here? Um, and it, it's it it's going no no no. What you do, it's falling apart. You're going to pick yourself up and you're going to get back out there and you're going to fight. And not only that, it's carrying the rest of the team with you because we all get so emotionally attached to the deal. Like John said. There's a lot of fear at the moment about the residential property market and the economy. Where are interest rates going? Where is inflation going? What does John, who knows a hell of a lot more than most, really think? I think the crystal ball is very hazy at the moment. Um, and I think there's a, um, there's a disconnect in a way between central banks and governments at the moment. The mess that has been caused in the last, shall we say, since Boris went or just before Boris went, in a way has accelerated the whole process because we've all got much, much more fearful. And I, I've gone into, certainly in our businesses, and I'm not alone because I speak to quite a few people, we've all gone into, we've all gone into austerity mode. And what I think that will do is that means that Today, when I call somebody up and I say, can I meet you in the office tomorrow? I, I mean, we're meeting you in the office tomorrow. It's not, this is not, this is not, please, would you come to work? And I think that is going to start to uh, change people's attitude towards, a, you know, to, to, towards, you know, this pandemic period is over. And I, so I think it will be, we'll be through it quicker because of the mess. And then the only question mark around that is Bank of England were quite responsible for this. I'm surprised the guy's still in his job. Um, are they going to be are they going to be getting us out of it quickly and interest rates coming down or or not? And that's the human bit that's much, much more difficult when we talk about crystal balls. You know. I'm sitting in committees internally at the moment where we're trying to strategize this. And, and I think we're all now taking a more bearish position because that's the easiest one to take because, that's, because that just protects capital and protects jobs protects it, rather, than, rather than being too, too optimistic. You know, I heard a report over the weekend that we'd be at interest rates of 2.5% next uh christmas christmas after this one coming i find that hard to believe i cut my teeth in interest with interest rates of between seven and eleven percent i suspect they're going to end up between three and five uh and that's going to be the new norm and i think prices are going to have to adjust to that um and we'll find out we'll find out and, and where inflation sits in that in that um equation i think we'll find out Okay, I have a final question for you, if you're ready. What is the one piece of advice you'd give to first-time home buyers right now? Choose a place where you want to live. I get asked this question quite a lot. Is it the right time to invest? Am I investing in the right area? Am I doing this? The answer is buy somewhere that you want. I mean, you're making a really long-term decision. 
and uh, and and buy some that you know the a that you that you know there's there's a whole question about whether or not to be ambitious or whether to buy something you can afford and and I think you have to know that about yourself you know are you are you very safe in which case buy something that you can afford are you you know are you very ambitious in which case buy something that's a bit of a stretch but but underlying everything buy something that you like amazing John, thank you so much for your time today on Secret Leaders. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, not you, you. You, you.com, Y-O-O.com. Thank you. That's the first time I've ever had to clarify. I didn't mean people to find out about you, which just sounded terribly rude. So, <laughs> It's a lovely name because uh, everyone asks the same question. And then the worst thing is that, you know, Philip Stark came up with this Y-O-O just because it was a bit of fun. Yeah, I suppose it's one of those things, isn't it, where uh, people tell you that might be a terrible name because no one can find it, but actually it's a great name because everyone repeats and asks the question. Well, it's about you. I mean, you know, coming back to that question about, you know, it's about you, it's about your life, it's about your home. It's about the most important thing in your life, which is your home, which is the place that you, you know, you you get up, at, you sleep in. You got to fit, so you've got to have the comfort to sleep in. It's the place where you, your family lives in, you, where you've got to have the security to be in. It's the place. It's, it's your platform to spring out into the real world every day. It's it's all about you, it's the, that, and that was where it came from. Amazing, I love it, John. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it, Dan. Thank you. Take care, John Hitchcocks. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. We'll be back next week with more inspiring stories from the world's top entrepreneurs. See you next time.